In today's video, I am going to talk about minimal facts versus maximal data as far as arguments for the resurrection of Jesus are concerned. Now, Testify is another channel that's doing a series on uh, minimal facts versus maximal data right now, and I will include in the show notes a um, couple of links to the videos that he has put up so far. In, in this video, what I want to do is have a short video where I clear up some misconceptions about the differences between these approaches. And I, I hope to be able to direct people to it. A lot of times I'll direct people to my longer treatment, the webinar that I did several years ago for uh, Apologetics Academy. I also did a longer uh, interview recently with the channel Cabane on those two different approaches. But I can certainly understand that people might say, oh, you know, I don't have time to watch something that long. I myself don't watch long videos usually. So I, I would like to condense here some responses to common misunderstandings that people can watch more briefly. So the first common misunderstanding I want to address here is one that I hear all the time. Uh, and it may be a fault of marketing, which is why I call this uh, marketing maximal data, where they'll say, well, you, you have to start somewhere. I have to start with a shorter set of facts with the skeptic, and then I can add more later on. So I'm just starting with a smaller sort of subset of the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, and that's just to kind of get started, because obviously when you're having a discussion, you want to make a brief initial presentation. You're not going to stand there and talk for two hours, uh, giving all of this data that supports the resurrection. And uh, before you give this, the skeptic a chance to say anything, if it's back and forth, you want to start with a shorter set of facts. So that reflects a misconception that the major difference between minimal facts and maximal data uh, or minimalist core facts and maximal data is one of the length of initial presentation. That's not true. The real difference is a difference of essential structure and not one of the length of initial presentation. As I'm often saying, the initial presentation in both cases is brief. So uh, for uh, maximal data, you can state it as the disciples who testified that Jesus was risen were either deceived, namely mistaken, they were deceivers, namely liars, or they were telling the truth. And then you briefly talk about how they were not liars because they were risking their lives in for something that they themselves would have known whether it was true or false, not for an ideology, but for something they claimed to have encountered directly in a uh, set of circumstances of extreme personal risk where they had uh, everything to gain by simply returning to their lives as good Jews and going on looking for a different Messiah. And instead they went out there and taught these things that were likely to get them killed. And you can document that from the book of Acts. You don't need to go into, you know, traditions about their actual deaths in order to document the conditions of risk. So they were not lying. Uh, and then they were not uh, deceived, namely mistaken. And for that, you, you talk about what they claimed. 
uh, and how it's not the kind of thing you could just be easily mistaken about that, you know, a bunch of you met with this person on multiple occasions and recognized him and ate with him and were invited to touch him. You know, that's that's not the kind of thing that's vague or uh, involves your interpretation that he's risen from the dead. He's physically right there in front of you manifesting himself to groups of people uh, on multiple different occasions. And these are not even always uh, the same groups of people and so forth. So they were not merely mistaken. Therefore, the best explanation of what they claimed in those circumstances is that they were telling the truth and Jesus was really risen from the dead. Now, that's a brief initial presentation. It's, got, it's an elevator version, as you might say. The real difference is one of structure. And as Testify has been talking about, as I've often talked about, in the minimalist case, the role of the consensus of scholars is much larger. And so for these uh, supposed facts, these core facts, you're you're saying, well, the consensus of scholars is that these are true. So then we're just going to rely on those. Um, and whereas in the maximal data approach, you don't you don't rely in that way in the structure uh, on just, well, this is the consensus of scholars. Um, and another difference is that the uh, Maximal data approach does rely upon the accounts given in the Gospels to represent what the witnesses claimed. It's not like you just say, well, it's in the Gospels, it must be true, but that this is a, a, a reliable account of what the witnesses claimed. It's not like it's been embellished to make Jesus look more physical or make it look like they had more evidence or something like that. It's not been invented. Um, and the minimalist approach does not rely on the Gospels in that way. It's claiming to rely instead on things that are just granted by a majority of scholars or in uh, Dr. William Craig's version of minimalism, things that we can mine out of the Gospels by using criteria that are used by uh, historical Jesus scholars of very various stripes. So they're not relying on those gospel accounts in the same way. So that's that's the essential difference. It's a difference of structure, not a difference of how long it takes you to state it initially. So if I am or someone else is advocating the maximal data approach, please don't come in the comments and say, well, we have to start somewhere. So we start with the minimal facts and then we add more facts later. That's not the difference. That's not the point, and, and you certainly can start with a short presentation of the maximal data approach, structured as I just gave it, but um, then you have to, you know, be prepared to defend the uh, reliability of the Gospels, and you have to be prepared to defend other things if you're doing the uh, minimal, minimal facts version. I'll get to that in a moment. So the second misconception is that the... Um, Maximal data approach is somehow not finding common ground with the skeptic, but the minimalist approach is starting from common ground. And this gives rise, I think, to a sometimes unspoken impression that the maximal data account has a whiff of circularity about it or even presuppositionalism. I was astonished recently on social media when uh, this topic came up or the topic of whether you needed uh, the Gospels or not to argue for the resurrection. And someone came into the comments and said something like, well, uh, it, you know, disagreeing apparently with me. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, are 
uh, leaning towards presuppositionalism. And I said, are you under the impression that I'm a presuppositionalist? I can't imagine where you got that idea. I'm about as rampaging an evidentialist as possible. And I think this arises from this notion, well, if you go with these other things and you don't, you don't rely on the gospels, you don't defend gospel reliability, you're starting with common ground with a skeptic, as if someone who takes uh, my preferred approach is saying, well, skeptics, you just have to accept the gospels. You start with the word of God by golly, you know, um, we, we don't judge the Bible, the Bible judges us, we just start with the Bible. And that's not true at all. That's not the point. You'll notice I keep using the word defend. Okay, the, the maximal data approach involves being prepared to defend that as historical sources, which doesn't have to entail being inspired, the Gospels are reliably conveying what the original witnesses claimed happened. Okay, now I do in fact believe the Gospels are inspired, but that's not something I'm starting out by assuming. So when it comes to common ground, the maximal data approach goes back to the existence of the Gospels as putting themselves forward, presenting themselves as historical documents. And then for external uh, confirmations, incidental confirmations, the existence of other things like uh, other texts or inscriptions or geography and that kind of thing, which obviously you don't have to be religious to acknowledge. And then the way that that fits together with what's in the Gospels or the statement in one gospel that raises a question, which is answered in another gospel. Again, that's not something you have to be uh, a Christian or religious to look at and so forth. The existence of unnecessary details in the gospel. So the, the properties and the qualities that we find there, and then other things we know, such as how do um, real witnesses talk? How do people talk when they're telling the truth? Now, I don't expect the skeptic to just agree with me about all this stuff. Of course, he's going to fight me tooth and nail every, you know, every step. But that also brings us to the uh, minimalist case and the question of, you know, how much common ground really is that using? I think it's a trope. It's a meme to say, well, you're starting from common ground. What's the common ground supposed to be? Oh, we should agree with whatever the consensus of scholars says. You know, you'll find that uh, lots and lots of skeptics are going to say, well, if, you know, they haven't necessarily looked at the raw data. In fact, none of us have seen the raw data. We're just being told, you know, this is what the consensus of scholars say. Um, but if the consensus of scholars grants that the disciples had appearances in groups after Jesus rose from the dead, a skeptic will often say, well, then I don't agree with the consensus of scholars. Okay. Uh, and it actually, I have not seen support. And I've been looking at uh, some of Dr. Habermas's existing work that there's a large consensus of scholarship that, that you know, that very high consensus for group appearances. I just want to add here. Um, but so what, you know, what's the consensus of scholars or what's the common ground? Jesus died on a cross. Even Jesus was buried in, in a tomb. Some skeptics will admit that, others will not, um, but it doesn't get you very far. And then it's when you get to the appearances that as I've been saying and other people have been saying, you get this ambiguity on what's meant by appearances. And the fact of the matter is, if there's anything really exciting there, it isn't really granted by the uh large consensus of scholars 
And what is granted by a consensus or may be granted by a consensus is uh, not really all that exciting. Um, and I think a lot of skeptics sense that. So there's not really all that much common ground uh, there anyway. I think that's an illusion with the uh, minimal facts or core facts approach. The third misconception is that if you take a minimalist approach, you don't have to do much prep. Now, this is something that if we stayed out there and put it out there, I think uh, there are plenty of people who advocate a minimalist approach who would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not encouraging people to not prep. And, uh, and I, I would commend them if they, if they would say that. Um, but I think a lot of people in their minds and occasionally will say, I don't have time to do all that maximal data prep. I want to be out there to, uh, you know, do a debate or defend Christianity. And this is, this is the quick and easy method. Um, and that's, that's not a good idea. Uh, I want to mention here an interesting tension in the third edition of Reasonable Faith by Dr. William Lane Craig. In the introduction, he says that an apologist who wants to defend the facts that he uses, such as the empty tomb, should not be saddled with defending the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, that's a, a, a term that I find unfortunate. Uh, we shouldn't be saddled with defending this. Um, but so then this makes it sound like, well, this is just an easier method, or you could get that impression. But then you go to the chapter on Jesus' self-understanding later on, and it's kind of interesting because then he gets on a sort of a roll about how much work historical apologetics is and how historical apologetics is not easy. And you have to master the criteria of authenticity and you have to master the methods of critical scholarship and you have to sort out which sayings of Jesus were well authenticated and, uh, well, which ones were not. He doesn't complete the sentence quite that way, but the sayings of Jesus that were well authenticated, implication being that there are some that are not. But the point is that it takes a lot of work. And I find that a sort of an interesting tension because if I'm going to be saddled with something, I would rather be saddled with defending the reliability of the Gospels um, rather than tying myself to methodology, which I think is overly limiting, and then steeping myself in that methodology and coming to talk like an insider with that methodology and then using that methodology to mine out certain facts. Uh, I don't think that's as good of a use of my time. And not to say that I would never mention the criterion of embarrassment or something. I discuss the use of the criteria in chapter eight, I believe it is, of, um, I think it's chapter eight. Anyway, one of the chapters of the eye of the beholder. Uh, please get that if you're interested in what I have to say about the criteria. But certainly if I'm going to put in a lot of time, and he's saying you have to put in a lot of time anyway, uh, I think we can profitably spend our time becoming prepared and saddling ourselves to defend the reliability of the Gospels. In fact, if, the, if as I believe, the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels is copious and is just sort of poured forth uh, once we know where to look, then it, it won't be a burden at all. It will be a privilege. And I would suggest that, as with anything, you get a few things to have in your pocket, and then you gradually learn more as time goes on. I also don't advocate uh, that everybody go out there and do debates. I myself do not do live debates with um, 
skeptics, and I don't think we should view apologetics as tied to that live debate motif. Okay, I'm into apologetics. Now I got to go and do debates. Absolutely not. Um, also, for the minimalist approach, you're going to get beyond those minimal facts pretty quickly. I think you, you will find in discussions and debates. And I've actually seen this with uh, Dr. Habermas in a symposium in the pages of Philosophy of Christie some years ago with uh, Dale Allison. It was a symposium on Dale Allison's work. And Dr. Habermas went right uh, uh, you know, there when he was talking about the physical resurrection, which is something Dale Allison has a lot of doubts about, to you know, he was seen indoors and outdoors. He was seen by skeptics and believers. You know, they, I think he even mentioned that they were invited to touch him, if I recall correctly. Anyway, he went into these things. And I believe Allison pointed out, well, these are not acknowledged by a large consensus of scholarship. And Dr. You know, Gary, called Gary, is going to have to defend the, uh, the reliability of the Gospels. And I don't see how he's going to do that. It was really interesting. So um, I would not suggest going into either a formal or informal debate context with a skeptic of uh, relying on the minimal facts and saying, phew, I don't have to do a lot of prep because you're going to get outside of your opening preparation pretty quickly if you do that, and you're going to wish you had prepped more. So uh, I would say that's a misconception that you can uh, do a minimal facts case without much prep, and uh, therefore, you know, you prefer that because you don't have the time. Again, I want to emphasize, to be prepared to defend the Gospels, you don't have to have it all at once. And I suggest this for laymen, I suggest this for apologists, I suggest this for pastors, scholars, just get started somewhere and start learning some of these things that go into the cumulative case for the reliability of the Gospels and then understand the structure and how that plays into that trilemma I gave, deceivers, deceived, mistaken, or telling the truth, and see how that all fits together and you don't have to do all of that prep in order to at least talk initially with someone, particularly in a personal or informal setting where you can always go away and answer their questions later. So it's really not going to uh, legitimately save you time to do a minimalist case. So those are three misconceptions. Now, once again, this, this fits in with the question of marketing. I think the phrase maximal data intimidates people. And people are saying, oh, maximal data. I don't know all the data. You know, I can't know all the data. I can't do that. I got to start somewhere. I'm going to go with this, this other thing over here. Um, and that's, that's just a matter of the phrase. I, I liked the, the letter M because minimal starts with an M. So maximal starts with an M. So maybe I could have come up with a better phrase. And if you have a phrase that's going to convey accurately what's going on here, but not, um, not be really long and uh, not be as intimidating, feel free to uh, comment on the link I put up to this at Lydia McGrew Author on Facebook or my Lydia McGrew page at Facebook and suggest an alternative phrase. And I'll see what I think about it, because I think we definitely want to encourage people to understand correctly what the dispute is over, what the difference is over, and then they can think about that and make their choice. Okay, if you want more information, check out the resources in the show notes. 
please be sure to like and subscribe and hit the bell for notifications and invite others to do the same. Thanks for watching.